Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. So if you have a copy of the Bible, and you would, please pop it open to 1 John chapter 3. If you have a digital Bible, tap your way to 1 John chapter 3. I want you to be able to read along with us as you see what we're saying uh, and see if it comes from Scripture or not. I want you to be able to read along and... Um, Certainly, we don't want to say anything beyond what the Lord has said to us. While you're turning there, uh, my family and I got to go to a lagoon day recently. We went up to the roller coaster park and had a phenomenal time. I don't know if you've gone up there. Not inexpensive, but uh, pretty fun. The roller coasters there are legitimate. You know, somebody says regional roller coaster park. That may not like spark your interest, but lagoon's pretty great. And as a tall person, uh, while we were there, some things went great, some things less so. Um, because of my like long legs, some of the roller coaster rides, I would have to like wedge myself in, and then I felt like doubly safe, because whether the lap bar came down or not, I wasn't going anywhere. Like my knees had created a full like you know structure. I was in. But the opposite would happen on some of them as well. So for some of them, instead of feeling extra safe, I, to get in this car at all, could not get the lap bar to lock all the way down. So the lap bar would come a percentage of the way down. And the 13-year-old that like walks along to make sure everybody's safe was like totally cool with it. <laughs> but uh, I, I wasn't in, like I wasn't all the way in. It happened on more than one coaster. And the difference in experience was telling. Uh, you know, when, when you feel safe on a roller coaster, it's still an exciting thing. You know, you're still moving at speed. You're still flipping and rolling and all kinds of fun stuff. But when you don't feel safe on a roller coaster, it's a very different experience. You know, you go over the little thing and it feel, you feel that, but you also feel that you've like left your seat a little bit. It's not okay. And instead of having a fun time with your kids, you're like, do I have health insurance do I, or life insurance? Like, what does that actually look like? How would Rachel fill that out? You know, you, it's a very scary thing. And in 1 John, God gives us lots of things to assure us of our salvation. Now, salvation, biblically, is something that God gives. He made it available through Christ. And for those who will receive what Jesus has done, it's not an action, it's a reception. You just receive what God has done, you're his. But your confidence in God having saved you makes a very different Christian experience. So, so if you go into the Christian life and because of what God's written in Scripture, you can be assured that you're His, you can experience the ups and downs of Christianity. And, and there's going to be a lot of pain. There's no question. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He talked about us following him by taking up a cross. It is not an easy thing. But when you read in Philippians, Paul talking about joy, if you have an assurance of salvation, that joy doesn't sound crazy. It sounds possible. You could have joy because you know the end of the story. You could have joy because you know you're standing before a holy God. Now, if you're not sure... You can still be his. That's the Lord that saves you. I mean, it's possible that you could be his, but if you're not confident or growing in confidence or have a place to go to gain some level of confidence, then the lap bar could have you, but you just don't feel like it does. Your experience of the Christian life is not something you would invite other people into. The, the kind of risks that you might add into your life in order to obey Christ's command, to take his gospel all over the world and across the street, Man, those risks are a lot bigger if you're not even sure 
If you're his, assurance is something that we should fight for. And the Gospel of John gives us assurance, and it gives it, he gives it to us in multiple different ways. The one for today is one that we've mentioned, but I want to go further with. So what is the test that he gives? What is the test that helps us to say we are definitely, definitely his? Look what it says in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to read a couple verses now and kind of continue to work our way through this chapter. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, what did you just read? This is a book that's written to people, but you got to think as you read it. It's not just immediately apparent. That last verse there kind of sounds like if you've ever killed anybody, you're not allowed into heaven. Well, is that true? Is that the right way to read it? No, of course not. I mean, God has given us several examples of people that killed people in Scripture. I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but Moses and David are pretty big names in the Old Testament, and both of those guys were murderers. Moses actually was one of the people that came to appear to Christ when he was transfigured on the mount. Are you telling me that Moses isn't allowed into heaven because he was a murderer? Well, that that can't be what this means. And what instead you want to do is look around these parts of Scripture and try to understand what John is saying. Well, if you read the first four verses or the verses above verse 15, you see that what he's describing is an either or, uh, a one side or the other. You're either somebody who has known the love of God and so you love the brothers, or you're somebody who hasn't. And he's described sort of a, a either or with this story about Cain. And Cain is a scary story. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis. It's the very first one. And if you open up the book of Genesis, and if you've ever, sometimes people say, I want to read the Bible. So they start Genesis 1-1, and they just start working their way through. You get a creation story, how God made everything. And it comes to this kind of exciting point when he makes Adam and Eve or humanity are begun. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. We fail. We break the one rule that God gave. He said, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you break this rule, death is the result. Well, they broke that rule. And there would be a point at which Adam and Eve would die. There were long livers in that first part of Genesis, but they still had death come. God takes them out of the garden and they have to go and live in the world that hasn't been curated by God in the same way that the garden was. And it's now a world that is fallen, broken. Oh man, this is big. This is terrible. But how bad is it? Well, the very next story, Genesis 3 is the story of the fall. The very next story, Genesis 4, Adam and Eve start having children. They have a son, they name him Cain. They have another son, they name him Abel. And while there are still so few people in the world, we have the story of both Cain and Abel bringing a sacrifice to God. And Cain's sacrifice, we kind of read between the lines of the way the story is written, we understand that Cain brought something that wasn't his best. Where Abel brought the fat, he brought the best of his flocks that he had been curating or had been leading. 
And God receives Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And he gives Cain some correction there. Instead of receiving that correction from God, Cain, in jealousy, kills Abel. There's like eight people on the planet at this point. And Cain kills Abel. The death that God promised wasn't just a death that would come. It was a death that was now like in our hearts. There was murder in the heart of Cain. And instead of loving his brother, instead of receiving correction, he, he kills his brother. Now, you read that story, there's a part of you that might think, wow, that's just really crazy and feel very distant from it. But I think the more that you read your heart, and if you understand that what Scripture is saying is that that's now humanity, you understand that, like, most people don't, like, plan to be murderers. Like, you have anger in your heart, you, you toy with this kind of stuff, and then the circumstances come, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you killed somebody. So when you read a story like what we have here from Cain and Abel, you think about what Jesus said about how you have anger in your heart, you've also committed, you've broken that law against murder. We should be careful. Okay. At the same time, we're not generally worried about murder taking place on a Sunday morning. <laughs> is that the main application of this story is just to not homicide anybody at Hope Church? Just like, let's reduce manslaughter within the membership. Is that the main point of the story? Well, no, I want to go further with it. What he's saying is there's, there's an either and there's an or. That if you have known the love of God, that his love in you is going to be expressed by love towards his people. And then he does something that's a little bit scary too, where he says, not just Cain and Abel, but he says, that's why the world is going to hate you. He makes it clear that the love that you have for other people comes from the Lord. Well, the implication of that is that there are people that have not received the love of the Lord. Doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love them. I mean, they haven't received that love from the Lord. They haven't chosen to be his. Maybe they don't even admit that God exists. Those people don't have access to that resource. Oh, that's pretty intense. I'm saying something there that has legitimacy for, for our world today where more and more people disregard the possibility of God or if they do believe in God, they have a kind of God that's very individual. They don't see that God as a God who is also God over others. The idea of evangelism is often poo-pooed in our modern culture. Well, that's a big deal because for us, we're saying that the love that we have for others and the reason that we can't hate others is the love that comes from God or the law that comes from God. If you take God out of the picture, then you remove a resource, in fact, the resource for moral action in the world. Famously, Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky He's a writer, but he was also a philosopher. If you ever work your way through one of his books, there's just a ton of worldview comparison that's taking place. But he says, without God and the future life, the, the judgment, the implication of this life, everything is permitted. One can do anything. Now, that's a famous quote. And in that quote is a sort of accusation that people without God would somehow be immoral. And well, yes and no. What he's saying there is that your ability to say should to somebody else has to be founded on an authority that's above both you and that other person. If you take that authority away, it doesn't mean that other person won't be a nice person. It doesn't mean the religious person is necessarily a nice person. 
To become a Christian is to admit that you have sin in your life against a holy God. So, so to get across the like starting line of Christianity is to admit that you're not a great person, that you're the kind of person that Jesus had to die for if you were going to be saved. So within the church, we don't see ourselves as these incredible moral examples, and we don't look out into the world and see people that deny the existence of God as necessarily immoral in their actions. But you need to understand that in the West especially, the moral actions of those that haven't submitted themselves to God is a a leftover from a time when everybody did submit themselves to God. And if you take God out of the equation, you cut yourself off from the reason, the obligation. A guy named Tim Keller, who writes about this stuff really well, said, and talking about that quote from the Russian guy, Dostoevsky does not say that without God there can be no moral feelings or moral behavior. He says that without God there can be no moral obligation, that everything is permitted or allowed. The only things that become wrong are things that we all sort of vote on together as wrong. Well, but that's no obligation. Uh, An atheistic writer named Julian Baggini, also quoted by Keller in the same kind of place where he was writing. He says, for the religious, at least there's some bedrock belief that gives a reason to believe that morality is real and will prevail. In an atheistic universe, morality can be rejected without a clear, compelling reason to believe in its reality. And that is exactly what will sometimes happen. So there's, there's implications to what we're talking about. When we talk about the love that God has given us and the way that that love is going to translate into love for others, John's right to talk about how the world's going to reject that at its own peril. Man, there is a test to Christianity, and he begins by saying that that test is, do you love others because God has loved you? Now, the reason that you would do that as God has loved you, he goes on to express. Look at verse 16. He says, by this we know love. We're going to show love. He's commanding us to show love. But how do we know love? Well, by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see what he says? He starts by saying, if you're going to love others, it has to be because you know the love of God. You have experienced God's love for you. We're going to keep talking about that as we go. But he says, if you have known love, then you can begin to show love. But do you see how he describes that love being shown? It's not by declaring that you love other Christians. It's not by declaring that you're a loving person. It's not by word. Now, a loving word can be what God calls you to do, yada, yada. But he says, no, it's by deed. It's by carving out of your life resources, time, intelligence, money to go and serve other people, to be in their world enough to know where they need a little love and to bring that love, even if it costs you. Man, this is, this is a hard thing. I think a lot of us decide that, yeah, we love other Christians. And by that, we mean like the nice ones that we know. 
I think we mean we have friends in the church, but that's not the command here, is it? We quote a lot from C.S. Lewis, and he's somebody I'll talk about in just a second, but a different writer named G.P. Lewis, in talking about love, says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Ooh, did you read that? I know I was loud and I have microphones and stuff, but did you like hear what I said? It's kind of spooky. Do you love people that are not very lovely? Because if not, I'm not sure that it's love. It may just be reciprocating something from somebody that you already like. It might just be trying to climb a social ladder by finding people that are kind of more advanced than you in an area you want to grow in. What he's saying is, no, you love actual people. It's part of what's so powerful about joining a church. When you join a church, you look at a group of people and go, them, that, these are the people that I'm going to care for. And so when you draw a line in the sand and say, this church, then you're not just saying that you love the church, capital C. You're saying that you love this family and that kid. And you actually pour your life out for those individuals. And when you do, you find that, that God's really got a good system here. In fact, as you love these people, you find that you do actually start to love these people. Think about this with kids a lot. Rachel and I had three little girls and they're not so little anymore. So now when we live our lives and see like little, little girls, it's like all we can see. It's like uh, everything else shuts off and we just both just sit there and stare at this little, little girl. And it happened. Uh, I was getting coffee with Noah on Thursday, a guy at Hope Church. We were having coffee and talking about like big stuff. And a lady walked in with her little toddler, you know, maybe, maybe two, probably one and a half year old little girl. And the woman walked in and the baby was walking with her and she had to hold the door for a long time because the baby was moving slow and the baby had her belly out. She had her shirt pulled up so her belly was out. And you know, be- toddlers are just bellies and heads. It's like massive belly. She had her belly out and she's walking real slow into the coffee shop. <laughs> now, as she did that, I didn't hear anything Noah said for like 20 minutes. We both just, ah, oh, staring at this baby. Because it's a little girl, and I had little girls, so I love her. Why do I, I don't know her. I'll never see her again. Why do I love her? Because it's a little girl. That's what we had. And I know about that little girl. I don't, but I do. I know that that little girl produces nothing beneficial, like that that little girl is incredibly difficult to care for. Every poop, that baby poops. She poops on herself, and somebody else has to clean it up. Everyone, it's not like she misses every now and again. Like she is not potty trained. They're responsible for all of it. She doesn't open a door for herself. She doesn't fix a meal for herself. She contributes nothing to that family and they love her like crazy. And it's not just because of potential. They just love her for her. And I could feel that because we had little girls too. Now, I don't feel that about little boys. 
We were at Smith's yesterday, and I was looking for buttermilk. It's impossible to find buttermilk. There's 35 alternative milks, and I can't find buttermilk. Is it half and half? You know, we're looking at all of this stuff, trying to figure out what is buttermilk. And my children, daughters, are having an intelligent conversation with me about, well, is there an alternative? Can you add lemon juice to milk? And, you know, we're having like a, and while we're doing that, another family is trying to find buttermilk, and their, their little boys one little boy had grabbed the, the door for the refrigerated milk area and he was licking the glass up and down on the door. I didn't feel anything but anger for that kid. Like I wanted a manager to get this kid out of here. What is that? It's not even a... But for the parents of that little boy, he does stuff that's so much weirder that that was like totally acceptable behavior for them, for him to do that while they were looking for buttermilk. Well, what's the difference? I have, have wept over little girls. I've put nights into little girls. I've gotten so angry about little girls that I've punched door frames. I've, I've bled for little girls, but I don't have little boys. So my heart is still broken and miserly and small towards them. And it shouldn't be. That's me being wrong. But how do I fix that? Well, I need to start serving and caring for some kids. No, not really, because it doesn't matter. But, but for you, I should start to love and care for you. And if I'll do that, then I'll watch as God, who's pouring love into me all the time because of his love for me, as I see through the cross and I see through a million different things and his blessings and promises, as he is who he says he is, as we were just singing, as he is who he says he is, and that love comes down, I start to show love to other people, whether I feel it or not, and then my heart starts to catch up. That's what he's saying that we have to do. Well, why is he commanding them to do that? Aren't all of these commands a little superfluous if they already know the Lord? Shouldn't they already be doing these things? Well, it doesn't really work like that. You know the Lord, you should be doing these things. You start doing these things. You find that you gain a lot of passion for people as you go. So, so we look to Christ and we start to serve other people. And as we do, we get to verse 19. Now, if you just read through a book of scripture, you can kind of gravitate to the parts that give you the most comfort. But if you do that without understanding all the other argument that's kind of going on, sometimes you can miss the meat of the comfort. If you're just reading 1 John, you might go to the, the part where it says God is love. If you just read 1 John, you might come to this part where it talks about reassurance. But it's important that we spent 20 minutes on the love command before we get to this assurance. But look at what it says in verse 19. By this we shall know. By what? Well, what we're just talking about. But by that, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I, I don't have any tattoos. I'm not against them. Don't feel judged, but I don't. And I would love if I was gonna tattoo something. Verse 20, right there. Whatever, whenever our heart condemns us, I want to put it like I, my shirt's on too much. I need to have it somewhere where I can see it, but I want to see it all the time. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 
And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Let's just be real clear about that real quick. Again, if you're not going to be an adult and read whole sentences, you might just say, well, whatever we ask, we receive a Lamborghini, you know, or whatever you think you need. But what he's saying is if your heart is God's heart, if you keep his commandments and do what pleases him, then of course he answers the prayers of those that are bringing about his kingdom because his kingdom won't fail. And of course he will bring his kingdom and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So understand verse 22 within the context of the rest of verse 22, but look at verse 23 then. He says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So what's he saying? He's saying it's possible that your heart, knowing the Lord, will condemn you. That you could have assurance of salvation and still experience the ride of the Christian life as though you're hanging on by your fingernails. But if you have this assurance then you can preach back to your heart because even if your heart condemns you, you know that the Lord who knows everything doesn't condemn you. Here's how I think about this. So last week I wasn't here. I was in Atlanta and we were with a church there that was doing like a missions conference for people that that church supported. And one of the people that they supported was me. There's a couple other guys that were like uh, church planters in different parts of the country. One's in Colorado, one's in uh, Pennsylvania. And then there was this lady, and this lady was a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa, in kind of West Africa. And she had been a missionary there for decades. And she's a leader. She, she does um, logistics for lots of different people throughout this organization that does missions. And, and she was kicked out of the country that she had put her heart in. And so now she's kind of on the border of that country, sharing the gospel with people as they go in and come out. And the question that the guy leading the sort of panel asked us before the church was like, what does spiritual warfare look like in your context? And so, you know, we all have to answer. I just want to hear what this lady has to say, but we got to answer. So we all answer. And the one guy said, well, I feel like the enemy in our context really nails people down with like temptation and not just to, to sin, which is also part of it, but temptation to just like stupid stuff. And they just fill their lives with stuff that has nothing to do with the kingdom. And so when you try to get them involved in something that really matters, they don't have any time because they've just completely filled their schedule with these hobbies and it's just stupid stuff. Now, he said that. I didn't say that about you. Um, It may be true, but I didn't say that about you to them. That was what he said about his church. And then the next guy said something about how the enemy just tries to break things. You know, like miscommunications happen all the time, but then there's also broken relationships happening all the time. It feels like the enemy's just trying to crush, to destroy. And I was saying, well, I mean, Satan, the accuser in my life, I feel like Satan accuses me a lot. Like these verses I'm thinking about because I'm gonna preach this this week. I'm thinking about it because also my heart accuses me a lot. I'm a failure and I feel like a failure a lot. I feel like I certainly am not a Christian. I'm a phony. A lot. I accuse myself with that a lot. And it makes sense. Like I've got evidence to prove that I'm a phony. And my heart condemns me. That accusation comes. I have to try and do something, preach something to myself. And then when the lady spoke, the missionary, she said, well, 
I don't really want to add to what they've said because I think that's what spiritual warfare looks like. The temptation, the destruction, the accusation. But I'll just add that in our context, she's talking about missionaries in these really far-flung places. We have days that we call ticket days. These are days when everything is so bad that if somebody handed you a plane ticket or a bus ticket to go back where you're from, you're done. You are so ready to quit that the only thing stopping you is logistics. But if somebody could hand you that ticket, you would just quit. We call them ticket days. She said, you know what the only medicine is for a ticket day? We tell people when they have their ticket day, the medicine is to go and share the gospel with one person. Seems like the opposite of what you want. You've been trying to share the gospel and you're so burned out, you're trying to quit. You got so much opposition. You want me to go back into the teeth of that? Like that's what your big encouragement is? But he, she said, here's, what, here's why sharing the gospel with one person works for a ticket day. When you share the gospel, you remember by speaking that message, you remember the love that God has for you. And you remember that it's true. You remember that Jesus Christ shed his blood to save you. You remember that love when you speak that message. And when you speak it to a person, you see a person that you love. You remember that they need that message. And without that message, they're going to die apart from God. They're going to go to hell. That they've got to hear that gospel message. And as you're speaking it to them and you're hearing their responses and you're seeing their rejection or acceptance or empathy or lack of, you're remembering why you love that person. Man, I was really compelled by that. What she's saying is obedience will lead to affection. If you're his, obedience will lead to that kind of affection. I said I'd quote C.S. Lewis, so I'll do it real quick. We're almost out of time. But he says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge and self-discipline and virtue. For uh, magic, and there's, he's talking about something in the Middle Ages, this idea that they could kind of control the world through, you know, spirits or something, and applied science, which sounds like the opposite of magic, but actually is very similar for magic and applied science alike. The problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is a a technique. And both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. A lot going on there. We're not anti-science at Hope Church, but science-ism is very destructive. And what he's saying there is what we are trying to preach from the Gospel of John, which is that if you see the world as it is, then you understand that one of your big problems is to conform your heart to what's true. As you read Scripture and understand who God is, one of your big problems is to conform your heart to what's true, and you go about that as men of old did, by learning more, by disciplining yourself, by pursuing the kind of virtues that God has commanded us to. And if you will, as you will, you'll see that God is gonna slowly start to conform your heart to his heart. You're gonna start to love as he loves. The way that I look at a little girl is not the way that God looks at you. My love is so small, it's like a flickering candle. It's like an almost out ember. His love for you, it's kind of on that same line, but it's like the sun. It's, it's an impossible amount. It's an intensity that you can't imagine that he feels as he looks at you. 
And whatever your example of like your most love is, take that and just start multiplying it out. That's what he experiences when he looks at you because he loves you. And your heart condemns you, but God knows better than your heart. So he leads you in paths of righteousness that you can conform your heart to his and start to believe and receive that he actually does love you like that. And you can start to show that love to other people. That's what he says in verse 24. The last one we'll go through. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I want you to know the love of God. The way I want you to do that is first to ask, do you know Jesus? Have you received salvation? He offers it to you freely. Today, you can receive that salvation. Can we talk to you about that? I'd love to. Utah in particular is just really mixed up about what that means. So we like to talk to people as much as we can to make sure they understand what it is we're saying about that. But if that's you today, let's talk. But if you say, no, I have received the love of God, I just, you know, I don't. I don't love other people very well, and I don't really know that I feel God's love very well. Okay, well, let's put those two things together. (laughs) Let's start serving some people, huh? Start carving some time out of your schedule. Start, Start carving some money out of your budget. Start carving carving some interest out of your intelligence. Are you willing to read a book for somebody else? I know you're willing to just throw out an answer, but, but nobody needs just answers. They need truth. Are you willing to pursue it? You gotta be disciplined if you wanna help people. Are you willing to do that? If you will, and especially out of love for others, not only do you experience God's love for you and start to understand love for that other person, but you pursue action out of love rather than pride. Oh my gosh. These are your opportunities. Will you pursue them? Join a community group. Learn some names. Get some numbers and start having people for lunch or coffee or something and just hang and just see what what is their deal. How can you serve them? Watch as they start to serve you. Man, together, let's start to understand what, what God's rich love is and what it means for his people. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that we would do that, that we would look for people. Lord, and... Maybe it's time for somebody to join Hope Church. I don't know, Father, to say that that these are my people. I'm going to put roots right here for a while. I'm going to know their names, and I'm going to know what's going on in their world, and I'm going to try and conform my life in such a way that I've got something to give. Whether it's reading, whether it's money, whether it's a, a room for a little while for somebody that's displaced, whether it's... Just, you know, an encouraging text, Father. I mean, there's so many ways that you have built for us to love one another. Will you you help us to do that? God, we we need you to teach us this stuff. And and you know how, how cold our hearts are. But your love is not cold. We help us to experience it and to show it for your glory and our good. Pray these things in your son's holy name.